0: Well, good morning. Ooh, it's not that good of a morning. So good, so morning. So uh, glad you guys are here. Welcome for those of you who are our guests. Want to welcome you to Olive Branch and uh, glad you'd be joining with us. Got a couple quick uh, just heads up for those of you who are part of the just family here and, and you know these people. Um, we've got two, two people who aren't going to be with us in the next couple weeks, um, for good reasons, not bad. Um, first of all is Mark, uh, who leads our worship team, and uh, you see him up here, he sings, he plays drums, keys, he's always somewhere on the stage. He's getting married next week, so that's exciting, and then the cool thing is two days later, um, Eric, who is our executive director at the church, you guys see him around, he's helping out with he actually served you guys communion on this side today. He's out and around. He's also getting married two days later. So they're all going off to uh, their honeymoon. So it's going to be pretty cool. Just uh, praise God for that. They've, uh, they're really excited. We're really excited for them. And they nervous because they won't be here. How is this place going to run? But um, we'll, we'll find out in this message. But we've been working on this series called Church Work. I'm going to close it out for us today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and pray together. Uh, if you bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the... Um, for the, just the, the beauty of, of our, our friends getting married. Thank you for our, our brothers and our sisters. We ask that you would just uh, bless this time in your word now. As we get in to solve and finish off this series that we're working in, would you just wet it to our hearts, move our minds and our wills to act on it and to uh, be men and women who are um, after you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the constant realities that I've faced and that you, you and I, you face as well is the reality of traffic. The you know, 15, the 91, doesn't matter where you go right now, they're going to be shutting something down. You're going to be sitting in it for a long, long time. And whether that's God's curse or blessing upon us, We'll figure that out in eternity, but uh, I think the the situation that I'm keenly aware of is is this constant traffic that's occurring around us. And so to distract myself, there's various things that we look at, right? How many of you have noticed the little green signs that say you've just passed into the city of Corona? Anybody seen those signs? Now I grew up here, and I've, I've seen those signs all over the place. They're up different streets, they're in different locations. I've watched that sign. The elevation never changes. Go figure. But that that population. Con- Constantly grows. It started somewhere like when I was a kid, like seventy six thousand or something like that, and then it moved to uh, you know ninety thousand. Then it was not a hundred thousand. Now it's somewhere around one hundred fifty nine thousand, or maybe it's even higher now at this point. And then they've added one for Temescal Valley, and you go down there, and it's about twenty five thousand people in the valley. And then you go even further, you get to Elsinore, which used to be like. 25,000, now it's upwards of 75,000 out in Tim- out in Elsinore area. You go over to Loss here, and they've got theirs. Everywhere you go, there's all these crazy signs indicating how many people live in our area. And here's the thing, it explains why there's so much traffic, right? Because all these people, have, all of us have moved in, all of us have shown up here, um, and, and we've, we're all using the freeway at the same time. And then it's, it's so crazy because there is one day of the week, I don't worry about traffic ever because I get up, And Sunday morning, there's no traffic until church is over, right? And by noon, there's plenty of traffic out there. But you know what? That disappoints me. Of all the weeks in the week, of all the days of the week, Sunday is the one time there's no traffic when we're supposed to be getting up, going to be with the Lord, worshiping God. In fact, we've done a little experiment as pastors in the town. We added up kind of roughly how many churches were in Corona, and there's about 110 churches just in Corona of various sizes. There's a lot. You don't realize we're like the Mecca of Southern California for churches. And you go down the valley, and there's a couple churches. You go out to Elsinore, there's, there's, you know, there's about... 40 churches or so. You go into, um, you go off into the last year, there's like a, you know, a few churches out there. We added up all the different churches in Orco Corona, and all that stuff. And you get to a sizable amount of people, and we just said, hey, let's be generous. Let's just assume they're about the average church size for America, for the smaller churches with about 125 to 200 people. So we just said, let's be generous, 200 people in all these churches that are small. And then we you know we know the big ones, and we kind of added those in, and kind of their larger sizes. And then we started going through this. We came down to this conclusion, that we added up all the populations of the different areas, and we went. Wow, no wonder there's no traffic on Sunday morning. There's well over 100,000 plus people living in our area that don't don the doorstep of a church on a Sunday morning. There's well over 100 plus thousand people that are in our surrounding neighborhoods and friends that, are, that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ likely. That's a huge number of human beings. It's a huge number of people that we're looking at. And as we've been talking about this, this series called Church, where we've been discussing the idea that the church is only one generation away from being extinct. It's only one misgeneration of the gospel not being passed to it that it just disappears in a culture, in a, in a nation. And then I'm a bit of a nerd, just so you know. I, I love church history. Any you know church history buffs in here with me? Usually, I find yep, it's about four. Always about four. Uh, first, you know, the, this size was about. So I love church history. But here's one of the things I realize about church history. I, I like to read the various books when they come out. The same characters over and over. You get Irenaeus, and then you get Ignatius, and then you've got uh, this. You know, you've got Augustine, and and you've, my just some of my favorite like Gregory of Nazanias and Gregory the Great. They're just great guys. And I'm just. Just kidding, but the what, what's interesting to me is these characters that you meet throughout church history are all of the great pastors, bishops, monks, and they've all left writings that's how we know about them. They all sat around somewhere in a time when there weren't printers, in a time where there wasn't a computer, and hand wrote very, very large manuscripts. And so, we know of their existence, we know what they were arguing about, and it makes me realize one thing they probably did a, didn't do a whole lot other than write. And yet we know these names of people, but where did the generations of Christians come from? It wasn't the monks who ran off to the hills. They weren't the ones that brought all that you would find probably in the lineage of who brought the person who brought you to Christ, who brought them to Christ all the way down. You know who it would be? It's the unnamed, unsung heroes of church history. Those names that never show up in a church history book. Those names that would never appear because honestly, they were average, everyday, normal human beings who went down into their market, sold their wares, visited with their neighbors, taught their children, and gathered at church. See, it was those people that led people to Christ who led people to Christ. And yeah, they had pastors who taught and they had bishops who led and they had all these different organizations above them. But church work was not about a slick presentation in a church area. Church work was not about a great evangelistic crusade. No, all behind every crusade, behind every salvation of Billy Graham, behind every salvation of Greg Laurie, all of these people is a relationship built by one of you and one of me with one person at a time. And introducing them to Jesus Christ through different means. So what we've been saying in this series is something very serious. That because there's one generation away, it's not up to the pastors, it's not up to the missionaries, it's not up to the the crusade preachers and the evangelists to see this gospel passed on. No, church work is not the church's work. Church work is my work. Would you say that with me? Say, church work is my work. One more time. Church work is my work. Emphasize that, my work. That's what I believe that's what Paul was getting across to the church as he as he's writing to his protege named Timothy. And, he, and he's telling him, listen, buddy, I'm, I'm, I'm about to die. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose this trial. Pretty sure the Spirit's telling me I'm moving on. So I'm writing this letter to you. I want you to be able to take this information, pass it on to that next generation. This is hugely important. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, he begins this conversation of passing it on to the next generation. If you would, grab your Bible, open it up there. We're going to look at this passage one more time as we conclude this series but there in second Timothy two one through six if you're watching online you can grab our app open up there and you'll have your notes with you and you can you can follow along there as it pulls it up or if you've got your Bible here you can grab one from under the seats page nine ninety six. And so what we're looking at is is this picture of Of church work, and he's telling Timothy, here's what you need to do. You need to have a relate you need to have this relationship with these people. So he starts off, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in other words, all of the other people who are sitting around, as I've been preaching, entrust that information to faithful men who are from that many witnesses, who will be able to teach others also another great throng of witnesses. We want this to continue on moving. And so how do we do that? You share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he goes into the details. He says, here's how you deal with that. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. He stays focused since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He's disciplined and he does what he needs to do. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And so we see right at the beginning... Is that yes? Church work is not just some some pastor's work. It's not some. It's it's to be passed on generation to generation. Church work is my work, and church work is hard work. And it's intentional work. This is what Brent and Justin have shown us in the last two weeks. That church work, as Brent showed us, is hard work. It's scary. We need the grace of God to do this. And we need to be together in the church doing this. Then the, the, Justin showed us church work is intentional work. And this is emphasized by this idea found here again in verse 6. Where it says it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's that hardworking farmer who gets out there. And guys, we get this, right? We get what a hardworking farmer looks like, right? No way. We go to grocery stores and get our food. Let's be honest. And some of you don't even go to grocery stores anymore. You just use Amazon Fresh. You're like, it just delivered to your house. You're like packaged food in a box and you're like, you bring it in. You don't even realize that was once a living animal. You just put it in your freezer, cook it up later. But this this is where we're at as a culture. Our food comes to us pre-packaged, pre-made. We don't even know what it takes to make a Cheerio. And yet the ancient world did. They understood this concept because 80 to 90% of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were subsistence farmers. They worked for their food. And so sometime around October, November, these men and these women would get up in the morning. These men and typically their sons and ladies would stay and do the housework and all this stuff. These men would grab a plow, find some oxen, shove that plow into the ground. So it was about five inches deep, not even deep enough according to modern farming standards, but deep enough for them. They would shove that plow in the ground and they would let that oxen pull. And they needed to be straight, and So they would keep their eye on that target, keep those oxen moving forward. If it was bad, they'd redo it. And day in and day out for for several weeks, they would... Dig a furrow. Dig a furrow. Dig a furrow. Dig a furrow. Yard after yard. Acre after acre. And when they were done with the furrowing and all these lines been dug in the ground, they would come out with their bag of seed. They didn't have spreaders like you and I do with our little Scott spreaders walking around our lawn. Nope. They had to literally pile up a bag of seed, carry it on their back, grab in a hand fist and throw it throw it, sowing the seed as they went along, throwing seed everywhere that they went. And, in order, and somebody probably was behind them with a rake because you didn't want that seed sitting out there long up because honestly, every handful of seed that you threw was a handful you weren't eating. You're throwing your food into the ground in hopes that it would be next year's food. So you came along with a rake and you covered it back up before the birds got to it, before it started getting too hot and you made sure that it was going. And all of October and all of November, you furrowed, you sewed and you raked. Furrowed and sewed and raked. Furrowed and sewed and raked. Day in, day out, whether you wanted to or not. Whether you were tired and your back hurt or whether your knees were old and it didn't matter. You got out there and you worked because that was your next year's breakfast. And then you went inside at the end of November after you'd done all the work and you prayed like crazy that God would bring the rain. And when the rain would come and you praised God the rain was there, the work started again because you had to pull the weeds, you had to stop the locusts, you had to make sure the mildew didn't grow all over the plants, you had to make sure they were growing effectively, pull out the ones that weren't producing enough crop and then make sure that this was growing big. And eventually it got a little bit and then it got bigger and then it got bigger and you're fighting off the pests you're doing all this day in and day out making sure plants are being plucked and the good is growing. And soon it got as high as an elephant's eye, right? And it was time to chop it. And so you've been eating off last year's provision the whole time, hoping and hoping, and now it's there and harvest time comes. Now you know why everybody celebrated with a feast at harvest. There was plenty of food filing. They would grab their sickle. They'd go out, into the, out there and day after day they would chop wheat, chop wheat, chop wheat, bundle it up put it on the cart, move it into the barn, typically a cave, set it in there where it was dry, make sure it was safe from thieves and everything else, go back out, chop, 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 until the whole place was done as according to their law and rule. It would take it, and now they're done, right? No, 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 no. See, next you took the wheat, you threw it onto the ground, and you took a big stick, and you threshed it. You whacked it all day long. Every single bit of wheat had to be hit and hit and hit and hit to separate the kernel from the wheat. You gathered and scooped up the leftovers, and you fed it to the animals, or you burned it in the ovens. And you're done, right? Because you got all the kernels. Nope, because there's a bunch of junk still left on the kernels. You don't want that in your food. And so now you would take a fork and you'd go into the winnowing process in the windy time of the year, and you'd start scooping it and throwing it in the air, scooping it and throwing it in the air. And all the chaff would blow away, and all the kernels would fall to the ground. And now you got kernels, right? Nope, you got to scoop all that up stuff up because your ground wasn't clean. You want to make sure all the dirt and particles and the pebbles were out so that you would soot, and now you sifted, and you sifted, and you sifted, and you winnowed, and you threshed, and you sifted, and you winnowed and you threshed and then you got your grain and you put it in a jar and then it would go in the house and your wife would grind it and take it and put it in water and knead it and do it now you're almost to bread you almost got a cheerio anybody want to praise god for grocery stores right now because this is the hard-working farmer who would do this year after year. And here's the worst part. For every one bushel they'd put into the ground, they'd probably yield five if it was a good year. Two of those would go to the landowner because typically you didn't own your own land and he got the first part. The Roman taxes would come second or the temple tax. One had to be saved because you need to throw it into the ground next year in hopes to have food. And maybe you would get to eat one of the five that you gave to the animals and turned into bread. This is called subsistence farming. That's why starvation was huge. And why when you read about the idea of a drought, how disastrous it was, our droughts, you don't get to take as long of a shower. They don't eat, right? The hardworking farmer is the one who wants to have the first share of the crops. It's a picture that church work is hard work. Church work is diligent work. Church work is intentional work. But, and this is the picture of going out daily and all the time doing this work. But hold on, hold on. Let me make it clear for a second. Because if you're new to the church, you're new to Christianity, you, you can hear me wrong. We, we've got this belief out there that somehow you and I, we work hard to make God happy with us. We work hard so everybody, so God will let us into heaven. Because, you know, there's some scales up there they are going to weigh our good deeds versus our bad deeds and all that stuff. And we've got to work real hard. to have. no. no no, that's not Christianity. That's every other religious idea in the world. Christianity isn't about working hard to gain heaven. Christianity is not working hard to gain God's approval. No, Jesus Christ did that work for us. See, on the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sin. He took all the bad that weighs down our scale, and there's never enough good to weigh it on the other side because he asked for perfection. He said, I don't want anything on the bad side. Because it insults my holiness. And so when we had that sin there, Jesus Christ came, having never done sin, bore it on himself, removed that so we could have a cons- a freedom with Jesus. A freedom from sin. A freedom from our natural broken ways of doing things. And that freedom, then, is what we live out. We work hard, almost like we, another way to put it is we don't work hard, we worship hard. We live a life of worship in which we worship hard. The best way I can put this is, is a concept that I've been reading on called positive and negative freedom and, and I don't need to get into that too much detail but the idea behind it is, is pictured to my son Nate. We have, a, we have a piano in our house. We have four kids and, and Nate's the one who's chosen I don't really want to play piano and we're like, well, that's cool. We got three other people playing piano and, and that's fine. And so Nate's like, I don't really want to play piano. So we're, we're okay with that but one day I was trying to talk him through this concept of freedoms and, and Christianity and I said, Nate, Nate, are you free to play the piano in the house? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, do I keep you from the piano? He says, no. So you can play the piano whenever you want? He's like, yeah. I'm like, awesome. But are you as free to play the piano as your sister? Because the sister's been playing and learning the rules and learning how to play the piano. And he's like, I don't understand. I'm like, oh, you know, in our world right now, people would tell tell me that the more you learn about the rules and the restrictions to music, you're less free than the guy who can just go up to a piano and use a sledgehammer. Like, I'm free. <laughs> no, he, you know, my son is less free than my daughter because he learned. She's learned the rules to the music. I'm freer than my, my daughter because I've been playing for years and I can make my fingers do things she can't do. Mark is freer than me because he's way better at the piano than I am. And a concert pianist is way freer than Mark because he's the freest person on the piano. He can pick up any tune. He can sit down with anything and just play it as he sees it, on the, sees it in front of him on the paper. That's the beauty of freedom when it comes to music. You and I have access to God. Jesus Christ took away all the restrictions through his cross. Our sin doesn't keep us down. And so now we get to work hard at living out this life that he's given to you and to me. We get to press ourselves like an athlete to grow close to Christ, to love him deeply, to live for him, to share him. We get to press ourselves out there and we get to serve him so that we please him. This is what we get to do. We get to push ourselves. And, and what I was challenged by Justin with last week was honestly that lady who ate that weird bug larvae puke stuff, you know, and in order to run the marathon further. I was like, that's nasty. If you missed that sermon, go back and listen. It's pretty cool. Um, my kids are talking about it all week. And what's weird about it is, like, I ask myself, what in the world am I doing to give myself the edge in my spiritual growth? What am I doing to give myself the edge to get that much closer to Christ? To stay just in in front so I can lead, so so I can be right there, right next to Christ? And what am I doing like that? And, Jesus, and because Jesus gave us something to do, he gave us this life defined here in Matthew 28. I love it because we can look at this just as a missions verse. But we'll read it again. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right there is the three concepts that are labeled in this room. We've taken this and we like to put it this way. What does this life of freedom in God look like? It looks like you loving Christ knowing who he is, knowing the theology, having a robust prayer life, being in the word of God, allowing it to sink deeply into your soul, loving him, living for him, that wherever you go in your work, whether it's on the freeway, whether it's the field, whether when you're on your screen or whether you even go into bed with your family, wherever you find yourself, you're living the patience and the gentleness and the kindness and the love of Jesus. It's coming through you so that what you love, guys, everything that we love and everything that we live for, we end up sharing. You love and live for your kids. You talk about your kids. You love and you live for your sports team. You talk about your sports team. When you love and live Christ, you share Christ. And Jesus says, I want you to have such an intimate relationship with him. I want you to know me so well that you can make other people like me. I want you to be able to pass it on to the next generation because church work isn't some pastor's work. Church work is whose work? Say it with me my work. Church work is my work, and church work is hard work. We impress ourselves and push ourselves, and it's hard work. And some of us, you know what? We know it's hard work, and we hate it. Can let's just be honest for a minute? We don't want to get into that Bible. You pray, but your prayer is about a millisecond long, Because you'd rather not phrase it into words and say it because you just don't got time. You're too busy on the freeway. You got too much to do at the field. You got a family outing to get to. Hey, that screen's super important because somebody's saying something. I got to get some sleep. And so it's hard. And we wonder should I do this church work? Let me show you again, though, in in this Timothy passage, he says that there's something about each of these characters, each of these people he points out to. And what he's trying to reference is, yeah, church work is my work, and church work is hard work, and church work is intentional work. But church work is worth it. And so stay at it. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. But church work is my work and it's worth it. Notice again, he says in the passage no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since he's aimed to please. He wants to have a goal of pleasing. This guy, the second guy, the athlete wants to be crowned, and the farmer wants to have something to eat. You work hard unto a goal of a reward. You work hard unto the goal of the crown. You work hard unto the goal of pleasing Christ. You work hard unto the goal of having something that you can satisfy this journey with. This is the picture. Church work is hard work. It's our work. It's intentional work. And it is absolutely worth it. You say, Greg, I don't feel like it's worth it. And I can tell you why I don't think it feels like it's always worth it. It's because we've interpreted spirituality the wrong way. There's never been a moment where I felt older than when I sat down with my kids and had a conversation about media. Years ago, when my daughter was at my, my, um, her grandmother's house, her nana's house, they were, she was watching a movie on television. Sitting there and watching it, and suddenly we're all kind of gathered in the kitchen talking, and she starts panicking and freaking out. What's wrong? Who turned the channel? She's like, yelling. We're like, "What is going on?" We come in there and we realize she doesn't get what's going on. She thinks the plot changed or somebody changed the channel or something. She's like, "I don't understand why they're telling me about this fruit juice right now." She'd never seen a commercial in her life. Everything she'd watched was on a DVD or streamed online. She didn't seen a commercial. She didn't know that you could interrupt this thing to tell you something you didn't want to know. And suddenly she's going, "What's going on here?" Funniest thing is later, now it's not so much about commercials. I have to explain to them, there was this, there's this thing called a week. You ever heard of a week? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, hey, Troll Hunters comes out, and you sit down and in three hours. You binge watch the entire season. You know what happened for me? It was called a week. An episode came out, and I had to wait a week until the next one came out. They're like, what a weird concept. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm so old, Right? but here's the thing. Everything's on demand. Stream it now. Microwave it. Instantaneous. I want prime so I don't have to wait three days to get my package. They might even come up with these little crazy copters, drop it off immediately. Whoa. Instant. Now, immediate gratification. Guys, let me just tell you something. Paul didn't use that illustration. He didn't say, look, it's technology that your spirituality is like. And if you think you can binge your spirituality, if you think you can binge read your Bible and come out stronger, if you think you can binge through a week of prayer and fasting and now you're going to be a spiritual giant, think again. If all you're here for is the binge of spirituality, to get an experience and walk out of church thinking it felt great, I was convicted, yeah, I'm ready to go, you're not ready for the long haul that it takes to sow and to tear, and to to sew, and to throw in all that stuff, and to furrow and do all that work all day long, day in and day out, without reward. Because it's agriculture. Spirituality is athletics. Spirituality is service in the military for a long journey. It is not on demand. It is not binge-watched. It can't be immediate. Sometimes God grants us an immediate amazing miracle, but that's why it's called a miracle. They're rare. And what we see here is that we ought to realize that, guys, we, we can't interpret our spiritual life through the lens of our modern culture. It is a long distance journey, and the reward doesn't happen immediately. The reward comes in the end. Notice, the, you get the crown at the end of the race. You get to please who enlisted you at the end. You gain your crop when you're done with the season. The same thing is true as Paul understood it, that the reward comes at the end of the spiritual life. In later, in chapter four, he says this, I fought the good fight I have finished the race man may we all say that amen I've kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing there's a reward a crown for those of us who are working after Christ who trust that our destination is found in him but that there's reward in how we work out that salvation as we work to love and show and, and just reveal our gratitude. And sometimes God blesses us with a reward in the present. I'll give you an example of this. Years and years ago, Brent, who you met last week, was preaching. His dad was not a Christian. In fact, he was an atheist. And when I first met Brent, his dad was like considered a lost cause. And we would talk all the time about, well, what kind of conversation could you have with your dad this week? What kind of evidence can you give him? What kind of answers can you give to his objections? Well, let's keep praying for him. We would pray as a youth ministry, and we'd pray and we'd beg God that they would bring this man to, to faith, and we would wrestle through all these things. And he just wouldn't budge, wouldn't budge, wouldn't budge. I mean, he, is, he had now entered into his 70s at that point. You know, that's getting up there, and we're like, this is what's going to happen. And his sisters were trying, and his... And he was trying, and finally, we get to this pastor's retreat, and we all drove up the mountain. And Brent had to stay behind. And suddenly, on this drive in the mountain with the elders and pastors, we get this text like, Dad gave his life to the Lord last night. Oh my gosh, man, you never saw more men cry in a car? The tears of joy. After years of begging and praying, when he finally got up there, we couldn't help but get on our knees and just praise God and thank him for this awesome thing. We were jumping, we were excited because God had brought a man we had been begging and praying for to Christ and his family, been working on for years. Sometimes, sometimes the hard work of sowing and watering and working pays out the reward. It's worth it, don't give up. Don't stop. Stop. Just because you don't see the immediate process. This is a long distance journey. This is the marathon training. This is everything we have. Don't ever give up hope. As long as they have a breath in their lungs, there is a chance. There is hope. Keep praying. Keep talking. Keep pointing. Keep loving Christ. Living for Christ. And sharing Christ as much as you can. Don't give up. No one's beyond hope while they're here on this planet. Greg, some people don't make it though. They, they, they won't listen. They won't receive it. What do I do then? Isn't it all worthless at that point? And I think this is what Paul was thinking. When in, in Corinth he wrote a different letter and he was telling them, guys, here's here, you need some encouragement. He turned in and said, My beloved brothers, be steadfast. Keep going. When you don't see the reward, when you're not seeing what's going on, keep going. When they throw the objection, when you, want it, when you want to change your theology because it hurts too much to see them walking away, he says, be immovable. Have some holy stubbornness to follow Jesus regardless of what they think or the culture thinks or anything else. Be steadfast, be immovable, but always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in what? In vain. Your labor, regardless if they receive Jesus or not, regardless of whether anybody ever notices you standing there shaking hands and caring for kids and loving on students or talking about your faith or going to work to pay for the pay for your family and, and to so they can come to church and know Jesus at their school, whatever it is, when you feel like nobody's seeing it, your labor in Jesus Christ is never in vain. All work is rewarded. All church work, all the work that is our work, God will reward because it's worth it. You may feel like you have the most miserable gift from the Spirit in the world. Like you're like, what good is it that I'm good at like organizing stuff? I want to be a leader. Trust me. There ain't no good leaders without great organizers. And God sees it anyway. Don't ever knock what you're doing for the Lord. He knows and he will repay. It will be rewarded. All of it's rewarded in the end. But remember those rewards, my friends, they're, they're, not, um, they're not about success. Rewards are about faithfulness. When he he told the story of the talents, passed out the five talents and the two talents and the one talent to these different guys. At the end of it, he didn't say, well done, successful servant. You multiplied my money. (laughs) That's what I like. No. He said, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. See, the faithful person is the one who stays steadfast. The faithful person goes back outside, though his knees are hurting and his back is aching. He goes back outside to do the work. He is faithful day in and day out to trust that the Lord's going to do something with this. I'm going to go back out again. I'm going to go back to this message again. I'm going to recontact that guy again. I'm going to go back in this situation again. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to get on my knees again. I am going to be faithful It's those of us who go, well, God, you would do it anyway, whatever. I'm just going to bury this and dig. You got that. Don't bury what God gives you. Don't bury the opportunities God gives you. Be faithful. See, what we need to remember is you don't earn your salvation. You don't work and get the grace of God. No, God, that grace is given to you. You receive that. But afterwards in heaven, there are gradations of blessing. Greg, that sounds really weird. No, it's all through the scripture. In fact, in this very verse, some men are given more and some are given less according to their faithfulness. See, what's gone on is the world wants to flip it. Nope, the reward is all the same. You got to earn it though. No. Heaven and access to heaven is equal, but there are blessings in heaven that are greater for some than others. Otherwise, the backslider who walks away from Jesus, blasphemes Jesus and returns is going to have the same thing. The guy who never goes anywhere, just sits down on the bus stop waiting for Jesus to return and never gets engaged is going to have the same blessing as the guy who works his tail off. That the man who comes in at the last second receiving Jesus and he's going to heaven is going to have the same rewards as some of you who have been Christians since you were kids and have sought to bless and do the work of God all your life. No, God sees your work, and he's going to repay you. There's reward in the end, and it's according to his justice and grace. In some cases, he's going to give blessings where he wants to give blessings, but he is faithful to reward. And so it reminds us that Wayne Gretzky was right. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. You all thought that was an office quote, right? No, it's not. No, the, it's true, though. For every ministry opportunity we, we pass off, every chance we don't take to, to, to care and live for Christ, every one of these things, we're just, we're, just, we're just saying, okay, I don't really want to take a chance on that one. That's okay. We have that right and that choice. doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. But why would we? Why wouldn't we know that church work is whose work? Church work's my work and it's hard work. It's intentional work, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Don't pass up the shot. Don't pass up the moment. Take hold of it. And you know what we need to do? We need to give ourselves a little push. We need to remind ourselves that. And what I want to suggest is maybe we should reward our church work because God's going to. You say, Greg, that, that means I would not get my reward in heaven. No, no. That's if you want to stand up and everybody say, hey, look at me. I'm amazing. Look at what God's done. Ha 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 ha. And we're like, ah. Oh right, that, that's, you got your reward. That's, that's what he's saying. Actually, notice who gets the crop, the first share of the crop, the hardworking farmer ought to get the first portion. And so what happens is we understand that celebration produces replication, right? What you celebrate gets replicated. We're going to celebrate my kids getting straight A's. Oh, why? Because you want them to get straight A's again. You want you're celebrate that championship because you want your kids to win the championship again. What they work hard at, you celebrate because you want to motivate. And then we come to the church and we're like, cool. You read the Bible. Do that again. No, no, no. When your kids read the Bible, maybe the first time they've gotten through a gospel, you go, I'm taking you to ice cream. That's a huge feat. There are millions of people who have never done that. There are more people who have played baseball and won championships and gotten trophies than have read through the Bible. Why wouldn't we celebrate that? Why wouldn't we celebrate when, somebody, when nine people get baptized and small groups are crying because these people have gotten baptized? Parents are crying because their daughter is finally coming to Christ and, and revealing that to people. This is stuff that we celebrate because the Bible says, check this out, when one person comes to Christ, the heavens have a party. And we go, we dare not get too excited. If you're the image of heaven on earth, shouldn't we be throwing a party? Shouldn't we be having some fun? Shouldn't we be celebrating the milestones of the faith as they're passed? Because we want people to replicate this. We want people to grow. And so what we need to do is stop and look at what we've done, where we've come, because some of us have forgotten the milestones you've passed. How far you've gone from where you were this last week? I got the opportunity to talk to some guy in the park. I was being a total nerd, walking around reading a book while walking through the park. There you go, that's your that's your pastor. And so uh, this guy with a guitar is, comes up. He's like, "Hey, can I play you a can I play you a song? Let me play you a song. Let me play you a song." And I'm like. I want to read my book. You know, it's kind of that thing. They insisted, so I let him play me a song. And, and so we started talking, and we got through, like, him, you know, his mysteries of the, of the universe and wanting to be a Mason and how he, he's a really cool guy and all this stuff. And I got to the gospel, and we got to share that and talk through that a little bit. But what I realized in the whole conversation, which was really weird, was he could cuss like it was water. Just like, I'm just like. And, you know, I wasn't sitting there going, I'm so offended. Actually, I was thinking, man, I remember when I used to be able to do that. I remember when I could use it for a noun, pronoun, adjective, adverb, and an explanation all in the same time, and my friends would go, I totally get it, you know? And it took me out of the bubble of being in the church just long enough to remember that church work doesn't always happen in the church. Church work happens when we're out engaged amongst the people and there was this journey that had gone on and that God could do the same journey for Jared as he had done for me. And in that moment, I could celebrate and thank God for the journey that he's taking us on. Though all the journeys may be different in this room and their process, it's a journey he's taking you and me on. And we should celebrate and reward the church work because God will in the end. And because church work, guys, is your work and my work. And it's hard work. And it's worth it. I have one evaluation question for you then. And I don't want you to take this the wrong way because you can use this as a way to beat yourself up. The enemy will use this to kill you. And I don't intend it that way. I intend it literally as an evaluation question. If the church did church work like you do church work, what would happen in the next generation? If the church did church work like you do church work, what would happen in the next generation? And here's the thing. Right now, I want you to take two fingers and put them up like this. You're right now part of CBU. I'm just kidding. Um, I want you to take it and put it on your wrist, right like this. And if you can feel something that's good, it means you're alive. And <laughs> means you have the choice to change that answer right now. You can choose today to put the effort to love, live, and share Christ. You have the chance. Because church work, it's my work, it's your work, it's hard work, it's intentional work. But oh my gosh, thank God it's worth it. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I want to lift up our church to you. I want to lift up Olive Branch. I want to lift up your church who you have placed your spirit in that we may be like you and to do the life that you've given us to live. Will you help us today to take this seriously? Will you help us today to be a kind of people who understand that the responsibility lies not on staff members and not on, on, on bishops and popes and scholars, but it's our work, no matter who we are. Help us, we pray. Help us to be a people who begin to live that out. We ask that you bless us in this way, that we might cohere from here in a life that is lived for you as we follow you together. In Jesus' name, amen.